This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Philippians, chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. You can find it on page 981 in the Bibles in your rows if you'd like to follow along as I read. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Josh, one of the pastors here. So glad that you could be here with us this morning. Christ is risen. risen We gather today to celebrate with Christians around the world. They're doing the same thing in Africa and Asia and Europe and South America. They're doing it in the Middle East, doing it in war-torn Ukraine. They're worshiping in house churches in China. We celebrate with Christians around the globe, and we celebrate with Christians throughout the ages in declaring that Christ, who died for our sins, has risen again. It's in that hope that we put our trust. Hallelujah. And by the way, this is not some profound metaphor. And somehow if we focus on the beauty of Christ's teaching, that he'll rise in our hearts and inspire our lives, and he'll live on in our memories, but rather Christians believe that Easter refers to a real resurrection, a historical event. After three days in the tomb, Christ rose again. Christians believe the resurrection was a real event in history and one indeed that has changed all of history. And I bring this up, well, because it's Easter, but also because there's some confusion about what is really the essence of Christianity. What's the heart of the Christian faith. What is Christianity most fundamentally? Is it primarily a set of ideas, an ideology, a philosophy? Is the Christian faith mainly a a set of ethics, code of morality? Is Christianity primarily a series of ceremonies and practices, religious observances? Now listen, there's something to all of those things, and they can all be important, they can all be good, 
But none of them are of the essence of Christianity. None of them the hearts of the Christian faith. Because you can adopt a Christian worldview, you can act ethically, you can be baptized, attend church, say your prayers, and still miss the essence of the Christian faith. The Apostle Paul tells us right here in the text that Chris has just read to us, the essence of Christianity is a person. The essence of Christianity, the heart of the Christian faith, is a relationship to a person, to Jesus Christ. Paul says, I count it all as loss compared to the sake of knowing Christ Jesus. He goes on to say, I want to know him. And I want to know the power of his resurrection. And so what, what I want to do this Easter morning, for the few moments that we have, is to consider with you what the Apostle Paul says is the essence of the Christian faith. To know Christ and to know the power of his resurrection. And so let's think about that together this morning. All right, so first, to know Christ. Now, I know we're just dipping into Philippians this morning. We haven't been in a series on this. We're just kind of dipping into Philippians chapter 3. But just to give you a little context, uh, there are some competing teachers uh, to the church in Philippi, or competing to Paul and the church in Philippi. Paul had come to them. He had preached to them the good news of Jesus Christ. But now there were some false teachers who had come in and said, yes, Jesus really did those things. Yes, Jesus Christ is really important. But there's something else you also need. Right? You need Jesus, but you need these other things in order to make you acceptable before God. Now, Paul has some pretty strong words in response to this. And it's all the more notable because Philippians is a letter that's all about joy and unity and harmony. But evidently, Paul has been triggered by this. That's modern parlance for what happens here. But look what he says. Again, it's a, it's a letter all about joy and unity and harmony. But in verse 2, he says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. If you want to get Paul worked up, see what he does when false teachers say that something other than Jesus is at the heart of Christianity, the essence of Christianity. Paul is responding to those who think salvation is something that you can achieve by your good works. Verse 3, he says, we are the circumcision. Not, not, not a ritual on the outside, but a spiritual work in the heart. We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God in glory in Christ Jesus. And we put no confidence in the flesh. Now, when Paul talks about the flesh, he's not talking about your skin. He's not talking about the outside of your physical body. When the Bible in general, with the flesh, when Paul uses it in particular, I'm not sure who first said this, but a really good definition. I mean, you read the word flesh in the Bible. A good definition is you take away the last letter, you take away the H, and you read it backwards. That'll give you a good definition of what the flesh is, right? Take away the H and you read it backwards. It's S-E-L-F. Self, right? Put no confidence in the flesh. Paul means put no confidence in yourself. You see what he's doing? He's contrasting those who would approach God by their achievement, things that they can do themselves versus those who look to Jesus Christ for their salvation, and to drive it home, Paul says, you know, if there's anybody who could be tempted to put confidence in their self, in the flesh, it would be me, Paul says. He says, look at the things 
that I could put my trust in. Look at all the things I have put my trust in. In the past, he lists them out for us. Verse 4, 5, and 6. He says, I used to trust my religion. Circumcised on the eighth day. I used to trust my nationality. I'm of the people of Israel. I'm part of God's chosen nation. I used to trust my family, my tribe. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin and Judah were considered the two most loyal tribes when the others had fallen away. I used to trust my culture. My Hebrew of Hebrews. Right? Not a Hellenist Jew, not one of the syncretized Greek culture where they take some Greek culture and mash it up with, with Hebrew culture. No, Paul was pure. The real deal. I used to trust in my morality. As to the law of Pharisee, the most serious, scrupulous, religious law keepers. I used to put my trust in my zeal. Persecutor of the church, which sounds like a bad thing, but, but Paul thought of it originally as a good thing, right? He was sincere. He was passionate. He would do anything for what he thought was right. He was an activist, you might say. Summing it all up, he says, I used to trust in my resume. Compared to anybody else, I was blameless. What more could you ask for? Who could have more reason, he says, to put confidence in the flesh? If the essence of getting right before God could be found in any of those things, Paul said, I had it. But he came to realize this was not enough. All these external things couldn't wash his heart clean. None of them could cleanse his conscience. None of them could make him righteous. Now, we don't use the term righteous very much anymore in modern culture. I mean, I guess we use self-righteous in a negative way, but we don't talk about the, a positive way of trying to be righteous. But even though it's not a modern word, I think it's still a very common practice, right? All of us are hungering for righteousness, although we use other words to describe it. David Zoll, in his book, Seculosity, talks about that. He says he was talking to a friend. Uh, she was living in San Francisco, and, and, and she said... Um, He said what she said about San Francisco really could be a stand-in for any secular city in the Western world. Uh, She described San Francisco as a place where no one's religious, but everybody's super religious. Nobody's religious formally, but everybody's super religious, right? Pursuing a purity of ideology, right? Pursuing a a, a kind of righteousness that we could uh, perform for others, a way to make ourselves feel clean and right. We don't use the word righteousness. We're still looking for a justifying story for our life. And maybe the word that we use most often as a stand-in for righteousness is the word enough. Here's what David Zoll says, and I think we have the words on the screen. He said, listen carefully, and you'll hear the word enough everywhere. Especially when it comes to the anxiety, loneliness, exhaustion, and division that plague our moment to such tragic proportions. You'll hear about people scrambling to be successful enough, happy enough, thin enough, wealthy enough, influential enough, desired enough, charitable enough, woke enough, good enough. We believe instinctively that were we to reach some benchmark in our minds, then value, vindication, and love would be ours. That if we got enough, we would be enough. But here's the wrinkle, he goes on. One so well-worn it hardly bears mentioning, no matter how close we get or how much we achieve, we never quite arrive at enough. This is what Paul is saying, isn't it? 
He added up all of his achievements. He counted them up one by one. And the total comes to zero. He says, I count it all as loss. Verse 8, he says, it's all rubbish. In Philippians chapter 3, what Paul is doing is he's making a contrast who he was and what he's come to discover in Jesus uh, between Saul the Pharisee and Paul the Christ follower. Between somebody who was trying to weave a garment of righteousness based on their merit and somebody who was clothed with the righteousness given to them by Jesus Christ. Between somebody who's striving to do anything and everything they could to be enough along with all the restlessness and anxiety and doubt and pride and somebody who's been welcomed into the presence of God by grace through Jesus Christ who is enough. All of us really fit into one of those two portraits. Will we trust in ourselves? Will we trust in the flesh to be enough? Or will we trust in Jesus Christ? This is the essence of Christianity. Faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 9, Paul sums it up. To be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Christ is what we need to be found in Him, to be united to Him, united in His life. He lived a truly righteous life for you. United in His death, He died so that your sins could be forgiven of you. United in His resurrection, that in Him we triumph over sin and evil and death itself. Paul says everything's a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. The essence of of Christianity is knowing Christ. And secondly, he says the essence of Christianity is to know Christ, but also to know the power of his resurrection. Now, why did the early Christians, like Paul, insist all the time, over and over again, they insisted that the resurrection of Jesus was central to the Christian faith? It wasn't add-on, wasn't tertiary, wasn't optional. It's right smack dab in the center of the Christian faith. Why? Well, first, they believed that it was true. They believed that it was true. We said this earlier, but Christians, early Christians never believed the resurrection was a myth or a metaphor or a fable. They insisted over and over again, and sometimes at the point of torture and death, that Jesus Christ really did rise from the dead. Now, why did they think that? Because he kept showing up. You read one of Paul's other letters, 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15. Read that sometime. Paul talks about the resurrection of Jesus, and he says time and again, Jesus appeared to people. He appeared to the women at the graveside. He appeared to Peter and the other disciples. He appeared to more than 500 people at the same time. Then he appeared to James, the apostle. He appeared last of all, he says, to Paul. And Paul was writing this, 1 Corinthians 15. He was writing about 20 years after Jesus had died. Now, if you do the math, right, in our time, that's like us remembering back to 9-11, let's say. About 20 years or so. Right, 20 years later, Paul is writing and he says, you know what? Most of these people who saw Jesus after he had risen from the dead, they're still alive. Right, Paul says, if you don't believe me, you go ask them. Now, that's not something you do for a fable. Right, that's not the kind of argument you make if we're talking about a moral tale. Jesus is not... A mythic hero whose teachings somehow live on in us. Paul and the early Christians believed the resurrection was a historical reality. When Paul was hauled before 
the Roman governor and the ruler of Judea, Festus and Agrippa. Paul says, you know what? None of this has been done. You've heard this, he says. None of this has been done in a corner. This is a historical event. Christians insisted the resurrection was true. Jesus really did rise from the dead. And that's why it's at the center of the Christian faith. But secondly, the resurrection is at the center of the Christian faith. Because if it's true, it means we have a living Savior. We have a living Savior. Now listen, the converse, if Jesus is not really alive, all you have is an example. You can't talk to him. It's a great example, but you can't talk to him. You can't relate to him. Jesus is not a real force that can come into your life, that can walk with you through your pain and suffering. He's not a real force that can actually bring change into your life. But if Jesus is raised, then Christianity offers something different than any other faith, different than any other philosophy. He's not just a teacher or a guru or a rabbi whose teachings live on. Christianity says you have a living Savior, which means you can know Him, you can pray to Him, you can struggle through life knowing that He is in some sense, in a real sense, with you and near to you. The resurrection is at the center of the Christian life because it says we have a living Savior. But then third, the resurrection is of the essence of the Christian faith because it's powerful. There's power, Paul says, in the resurrection. And this is a power that all of us need. Life is hard. Right? If you don't know that yet, you will at some point. Life is hard. There's so much suffering. There's heartache. There's betrayal. There's hurt. There's pain. There's confusion in this world. How will you handle it when it inevitably comes to you? You know, Paul knew how hard life can be. In fact, he wrote Philippians from a prison cell with his own mortality hanging over him. How do you deal with that? The reality is most of us choose not to deal with it. We tend to keep the idea of our own mortality away from us, don't we? I mean, it's easier to do when you're younger. It gets a little harder when you're older. But regardless of your age, the truth is every sunset and every sunrise brings you closer to facing your own death, right? And for many, right, somebody else's death that you love is going to break into your life at some point. How do we face it? Even as a younger person, you need to start fueling your mind with the power of the resurrection so that someday when you need it most, it's there for you. Just a little bit later in Philippians 3, Paul says this. He says, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. There's power in the idea of the resurrection and the hope of Easter. Because the idea of Easter is not just that Jesus rose from the dead, but that in him you also are going to rise from the dead. That your lowly body will one day rise again to a heavenly body. That your primary citizenship is in the new heavens and the new earth, the coming kingdom. That Jesus has gone ahead to prepare a place for you. A few of us were at a conference in Kuala Lumpur, uh, January of 2020, right before the pandemic. It was a conference mostly of 
Chinese Christians. And uh, one of the main speakers there was a pastor from New York City, uh, Tim Keller. And uh, we all left the conference. We came home. We heard shortly thereafter that Tim had collapsed at the airport, I think, or maybe just after he got home. Did all kinds of tests and found out it was just an intestinal infection, easy enough to take care of. But when they were doing this battery of testing, they discovered that he had stage four pancreatic cancer, which if you know anything about that, the prognosis is not good at all. Now, Tim had recently published a book on death, it was called. He had spent almost all of his adult life preparing other people to face death. But when he got this diagnosis, he said he still felt unprepared to deal with his own mortality. And just three years ago at Easter 2020, just a few months after that diagnosis, he wrote an article in the Atlantic called Growing My Faith in the Face of Death. I want to read to you just a little bit of it. He said, my wife Kathy and I, after the diagnosis, spent much time in tears and disbelief. We were both turning 70, but felt strong, clear-minded, and capable of nearly all the things we'd done for the past 50 years. We had plenty of plans and lots of comforts, especially our children and grandchildren. We expected some illness to come and take us, but when we felt really old, but not now, not yet. He goes on, listen to this. He said, death is an abstraction to us, something technically true, but unimaginable as a personal reality. But as death, the last enemy, became real to my heart, I realized that my beliefs would have to become just as real to my heart, or I wouldn't be able to get through the day. Theoretical ideas about God's love and the future resurrection had to become life-gripping truths or be discarded as useless. So when the certainty of your mortality and death finally breaks through, is there a way to face it without debilitating fear? And that really is the question, isn't it? Is there a way to spend the time you have left growing into greater grace, love, and wisdom? I believe there is, but it requires both intellectual and emotional engagement, head work and heart work. And Pastor Keller's done a number of interviews since this, and it's really touching if you've listened to any of these to see how focused he is on shepherding other people, asking about other people, caring for other people, talking about the future uh, of the church, trying to shape and, and shepherd and, and, and steer and guide the future of the church. But eventually, in any of these interviews, the interviewer ultimately breaks in and says, yeah, but Tim, how's your, your health? And he'll be honest about it. But it's beautiful to see how outwardly focused he is. He goes on to write in the article, Most particularly for me as a Christian, Jesus' costly love, death, and resurrection had become not just something I believed and filed away, but a hope that sustained me through the day. And then he said, I pray this prayer daily. And we have the prayer there. He said, occasionally it electrifies, but ultimately it always calms. And here's the prayer. As I lay down and sleep, And arose this morning only by your grace. Keep me in the joyful, lively remembrance that whatever happens, I will someday know my final rising because Jesus Christ lay down in death for me and rose for my justification. Friends, what we believe about the future affects the way you live, affects the experience in your life right now. If this is all there is, if that's what we conclude, then then our hope is limited 
right? If you believe that this is all there is, that will affect the way that you live in this world. But if you believe there is a real resurrection from the dead, there is a real kingdom to come. If there is a real new heavens and a new earth, that also will affect how you live. That also will open your heart to new possibilities for hope and love and courage. There's a band uh, called uh, Death Cab for Cutie, and they have a song called St. Peter's Cathedral. And uh, it's not at all from a Christian perspective, uh, but really great, all their songs, really great songwriting. Um, but here's just a, the second verse, St. Peter's Cathedral. It says this, At St. Peter's Cathedral, there is stained glass. There's a steeple that is reaching up toward the heavens. Such ambition never failing to amaze me. It's either quite a master plan or just chemicals that help us understand that when our hearts stop ticking, this is the end and there's nothing past this. Now, uh, that song, St. Peter's Cathedral, is pretty long for a rock and roll song. It's four minutes and 28 seconds. Most songs are shorter nowadays. Four minutes and 28 seconds, but at the two-minute mark, all the lyrics stop. No more singing, no more verse, except for that last line. That's what goes on and on for the last two minutes and 28 seconds. And there's nothing past this. 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 What we believe about the future really does impact how we live right now. If there is nothing past this, that means there's no justice in this world for the vast majority of all the atrocities that go around. Scores are not settled for most people in this life. There's no hope, ultimately, for the oppressed in this world. You will die and decay and become dust. No reunion. No hope beyond your 60, 70, 80, maybe 90 years here. But listen, we are here to celebrate on this Easter morning the resurrection of the dead. If this is true, if Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and if he indeed is going to bring about a resurrection from the dead from all those who are in him, then that should change everything and everyone. Knowing Christ, meditating on his resurrection, should bring power for change and hope and courage in your life. Think about it for a second. It can change the way you deal with your own mortality. It can give you hope and courage as you face your own death, knowing that this is not the end, right? There is something Past this, a kingdom to come, a new heavens and a new earth. It can change the way that you deal with losses and disappointments and scorns and being overlooked and being hurt and betrayed in this life. One day the wrongs will be made right. Christ will wipe away every tear. All things will be new. The resurrection will change the way that you treat other people, right? C.S. Lewis said, there are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. It is immortals, if this is true, it is immortals that we joke with and work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, Lewis says, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. If this is true, the resurrection will change the way you deal with your own sin. Right? There's another place that Paul writes in Romans chapter 8 where he says the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in you. And do you know what that means? 
It means you have the power that raised Christ from the dead as you try to defeat your own sin. We just did a series here on the seven deadly sins. We talked about how strong temptation can be, but you have the Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead living in you, which means you can see real change in this life. You can see anger melt into forgiveness and love. You can see pride lose its grip on your heart and humility rise up in its place. You can see envy become contentment. You can see lust be conquered in favor of self-control. You can see greed turn into generosity and gluttony into hospitality and sloth into a desire to work hard for the kingdom of God and to pour yourself out for your neighbors. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, if true, can even make you willing to suffer with him. Paul says in verse 10, he says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and that I might share in his sufferings and become like him in his death. Some translation says that I might join in the fellowship of his sufferings. Now look, if this is life is all there is, that's not a fellowship you want to join. If this is all there is, it's logical to do everything you can to dodge pain and to seek comfort. But if this life is not all there is, if eternity stretches on much longer than what you experience in this world, then there might be things more important than avoiding pain and discomfort and difficulty. And if you become more like Jesus, if you begin to look more and more like him, then the chances are at some point you're going to be treated like he was. Which means that you'll find his sufferings being reenacted in your own life. But it will be worth it if your citizenship is in heaven. And the resurrection is true. You see why Easter is smack dab in the middle? In the center of Christianity in its essence? Because there's power in the resurrection. Paul says, I want to know Christ and I want to know the power of his resurrection. And may it be so for us. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Would you pray with me? Lord, indeed, we do want to know you. And we want to know the power of the resurrection. And so as we, as we face life's trials, life's losses and disappointments and difficulties, we desperately need the hope and the courage that can come from being found in you. May we put no confidence in the flesh and instead... May we desire to know you and may we have faith in this future kingdom that you're preparing for those who love you. Would you meet us even this morning as we worship? The spirit of the living God, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, we ask that you would move in us today. Would you give us hope? Would you give us comfort? Would you give us courage to bear witness to the Easter miracle that Christ who died lives again? We pray all this in his name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.